millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History. Podcast. Hello and welcome to Podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm joined once more at my gaff by uh, the lovely Peter Hart. Uh, today, Pete, what are we doing today? Well, uh, back in the mists of time, Gary, when you were just a fresh-faced young lad, uh, we did a couple of podcasts on Jutland and uh, we... We, we've forgotten all about it, haven't we? Well, except a bit about you wearing a Japanese admiral's uniform, which I see you wearing again today. Oh, uh, the cocked hat really suits me, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, I'm not going there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so we're, we're doing a series on Jutland because we really like it. I'm, if I'm anything, I'm supposed to be a navalist. That's what I did at uh, uh, university. I, I did naval history. Uh, I like naval history, and I've never had the chance to work in it. <laughs> so uh, this is good for me. Uh, and we're, we're, we're doing the Battle of Jutland. We're doing it all. We're, we're reaching back into the past. We're doing it all. The present and the future. Yeah, so this one's called Jutland One. Ooh. The naval situation, 1898 to 1914. Really, really gripping title. Yeah, you can imagine. I can imagine all over the country people switching the podcast off. Um, we like it anyway. Uh, let's set the scene. So 1914, where do you think we are? Well, the Royal Navy had a lot to lose. Uh, Britain's fleet had attained its position of global preeminence during the succession of maritime wars that had rumbled on throughout the 17th and 18th century. It had, and it actually culminates, I think you noticed this, in the 19th century at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. Which is the 19th century. It is, just into it, isn't it? And, and, and that, that, that I mean, we all know the Battle of Trafalgar. One day, perhaps, Gary, we'll do podcasts on that. But um, that, that's where they gained that, that position. And, and uh, what, what do you think that meant? What did Trafalgar mean? Well, whilst post-Napoleonic Europe slowly recovered from the ravages of war, Britain, free of continental engagements, exploited its undisputed control of the seas to ensure that the British Empire was in a pole position in the race to gain colonies and dominate large sections of the globe. It's all about commerce. Are we lovely then? Oh, everybody likes us. Yes, uh, and what's the key to it is is, is the, the, the mobility and speed of naval intervention. Uh, uh, 
just just it's not necessarily a fleet turning up is it gary you don't have to have sort of 25 battleships turning no and there are examples of this the well-timed arrival of even just a single gunboat could often settle a localized dispute before it got out of hand long before other nations could begin to react yeah and 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 the the continental european powers they've got much bigger armies haven't they but but their colonies they only exist on sufferance really and can they defend them if they get into a war with Britain? I mean, they didn't, but could they? No, not really. Only the Royal Navy could move troops in almost total security around the globe. Now, this naval ascendancy was maintained by having... Oh, I went Australian then. Yeah, it's lovely, that. This naval ascendancy <laughs> was maintained by having overwhelming numbers of all the types of ships that could possibly require be required by a nation at war. Now, that ranged from the most modern battleships right through to the ubiquitous sloops and gunboat. I was hoping you'd mispronounce ubiquitous. (laughs) Now, the supremacy was so absolute that no one country could have a chance of naval victory against the Royal Navy. That's it. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, um, naval historians, naval experts, if you like, they've been thinking about how this maritime supremacy came into being. And and this theoretical stuff we're going to go into now is quite important because it guides the what happens in the Great War. Uh, who do you think the first great sage of, of, of naval history is? Well, it was an officer of the United States Navy, one Alfred T. Mahn. I think it's M-A-H-A-N. I think it's Mahn. Yeah. Uh, based at the U.S. Naval War College. Now, Marne examined maritime policy and naval battles to seek the underlying reasons for the stunning success of the Royal Navy. Now, he believed that to become a maritime power, a country must steep itself in the sea in peacetime. Wouldn't they drown? I'm steeped in the sea. <laughs> no, no, no. Naval strength is it, it, it's rooted in, and he believed it was in, indivisible from a sort of thriving maritime base of commerce and associated industries, things like shipbuilding, just everything to do with the sea. Um, and what's the best way of achieving that? What is the best way of forcing you to do that? Well, the acquisition and commercial exploitation of colonies. To prepare for war, foresight was required to amass and maintain a navy of a size commensurate with the amount of merchant shipping and commercial interests that depended on the freedom of the seas. Yeah. And what else do you need? It's not just ships, do you? You, Because even in time of sail, they need something else. Well, you're making uh, uh, reference to appropriate naval bases, I should imagine, that would be needed across the globe wherever the navy might be required to operate. What's the ultimate aim? Well, to ensure that even amidst war, trade routes would be unaffected by enemy action. Mm, that now, sounds what Britain had done, doesn't it? Yeah, well, in essence, it's exactly what Great Britain had done. And her traditional adversaries, which were Spain, Holland, France and practically everybody else, <laughs> had not. Now, um, Mahan's view was that by failing to recognise the enduring importance of sea power, those nations had allowed much of their empire to slip through their fingers. That's because we kept taking them off them. Uh, well, well, the Britons are not the goodies in all this, are they? Um, and and Mahan, it's not just materialism to him, is he? he it, it's not just, you know, X or Y amount of ships will secure it, uh, or, or sailors even. He believed something else, didn't he? 
Well, he maintained that the British had won many of their key battles because of the characteristics of dynamic leadership or the warrior spirit, as he called it, inculcated in their admirals. That's another word you were hoping I would fall over. I was, yeah. It, it, uh, it, this is, uh, well, I'm not so sure about this element of Mahan's uh, thinking. Um he believed naval leadership had to be developed. You've got to study the lessons of past campaigns within an overall culture that encouraged the rise of courageous, self-confident and skillful commanders. A bit like TFL who do this to, you know, they make sure only the best rise to the top. Uh, who would be unafraid to share his secrets with the next generation of officers. Who, who was Mahan's hero then? Well, the uh, incomparable Horatio Nelson. I was hoping you'd fall over a word I'd put in there. Now, this is Alfred Mann. Right. Who was an American, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Oh, God. Oh, dear. <laughs> Nelson, for the most part, shone upon the battlefield by his tactical combinations, by the rapidity and boldness with which he carried out plans previously laid, or, on occasion, by the astonishing coup d'oeil and daring with which, in unforeseen crises, he snatched and secured escaping victory. Couday, yeah, Coudoyle. Uh, I'm not trying to pronounce that. What is it, Gary? It is pronounced Couday. I checked it, and uh, it it means. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? All right, all right. Don't interrupt. It's uh, it's it's uh, a comp- it's taking a comprehensive view at a glance, so you quickly understand the situation. So it's a it's it, you you see something and instantly react with a, a proper plan. Yeah, exactly what I thought when I met you. I saw you, and I instantly thought something. <laughs> I must keep away from him. Right um, now, uh, so uh, so there we go. Uh, that, um, that, so that's uh, that that's Nelson. Um, now Mahan's doctrines uh, were, were they accepted? Were they, were they were, what, what influence did they have? Well, yes, they were widely, widely accepted and seized upon both by various interested governments and a generation of naval officers across the globe. In a sense, he supplied a template for any naval power that considered a challenge to the British hegemony. Ooh. I put all these words in to try and trip you up this today, and you just... I did think that might be a hyperbole. Hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'll never forget that. Now, however, for the most part, these acolytes ignored much of the more sophisticated thinking which informed his analysis and focused instead on the simple premise that it was the duty of a navy to seek out the opposing fleet, defeat them in a decisive battle and thereby secure command of the sea. Oh, I can see where this is going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that's not exactly what he was saying. But there was another great... Uh, uh, that uh, Mahan's book was the influence of the sausage of sea power. I've forgotten the exact title, but I'll put it up on the the internet. Uh, the other great naval strategist, who was that? He was British, British lad, Sir Julian Corbett, who was surprisingly a lifelong civilian. Ooh. But he nevertheless wielded great influence by means of his lectures to naval officers at the Royal Naval College in Greenwich. Yeah, and a lot of people be thinking I've heard that name, and he wrote the what, official history. <laughs> He wrote the official history of the, the naval operations in the war, did young Corbett. He's older by then. Um, now, uh, he'd actually studied a military strategist. Uh, who was that? Well, he was uh, uh, inspired war. by Carl von Clausewitz. We've heard of him on war. Absolutely. Uh, Corbett also studied the lessons of British naval supremacy. He adopted a more pragmatic approach than Marne to the problems of conducting 
War at Sea, which he eventually published in 1911. What was as, it called? Well, I looked this up. It was called uh, Some Principles of Maritime Strategy. Oh, is it a cracking read? Another imaginative title. He could he could have thought of titles for our podcast. Yes, <laughs> clunk, <laughs> clunk at the sound people switching off all of. Now he's less sanguine about the possibility of obtaining outright command of the sea, which he considers unrealistic. He defines it as the control of maritime communications. But what does he point out? He points out something that we can understand. And it, it, you know, what does he point out? Well. The impossibility of being everywhere at once across the limitless oceans. Ooh. I mean, that's true today. It's true. Yeah, it's always true. Uh, and uh, it, it's also that the, the uns- it's a s- uncertainty because the weaker power, the weaker naval power, might choose not to engage in the decisive fleet action. It might instead remain safe in harbour as a now what was the expression and this is a crucial point to understanding Jutland and and the Great War what a fleet in being in being as opposed to a fleet not in being because it's sunk yeah so it's continuing to contest the command of the sea from a position of safety and that's logical if you think about it it's it's there it is I mean I think Mahan was great but Corbett just adds, adds a late because uh, a lot of Mahan's followers don't conceive of such a situation and, and they continue to, to bang on about uh, a decisive battle. And, and uh, this seduces many, well, many otherwise sensible officers. Uh, um, uh, but the, 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 if you think about it, if you're the weaker naval power, why sacrifice your fleet? Absolutely. Now, for a fleet in, uh, being... Uh, it- could render invasion almost impossible. If you think about it, it's there. By effective use of surprise, a partial command of the sea could be obtained temporarily in a specific location. So you can just, you know when you're going to turn up. You can turn up with all your forces and hopefully catch the superior power at a weak point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They would send out specially built commerce raiders to disrupt the sea lanes, while any attack on their harbour fastness would inevitably expose the superior naval power to such risks that their superiority would be forfeited. Uh, This is all clever stuff. uh, It's particularly in the case of after the invention of mines and submarines, which again we'll bang on about a lot. Bang, bang. (laughs) Now, Corbett also clearly delimited the boundaries of maritime power. Although he believed it was of the utmost importance, in the end, to resolve a conflict, and we've had this discussion before, success on land was eventually required to secure any gains that may have been achieved by the wielding of naval power. Yeah, so what you're saying, and uh, well, no, no, what Corbett's saying, and you are endorsing, is that true command of the seas depends on a decisive victory on land. In the end... Boots on the ground. Yeah. Uh, now, so having highlighted some of the problems that you can say exist with a, a if, if you like, a purist Mahan uh, approach, uh, Corbett does put some partial solutions forward. What does he recommend? Uh, the power of the blockade and indirect attacks. An effective blockade could produce command of the sea by confining an enemy's naval fleet and commercial marine in harbour. It would not be uncontested. Yeah, there might be breaches. Uh, but 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 much, nearly all of the military and commercial fruits of maritime supremacy could then be harvested as long as the blockade held. 
Uh, in the meantime, behind the line of the blockade, a vigorous policy of limited war and indirect attacks. They could harass the enemy's coastline, in theory, threaten any overseas colonies, just eat them up, uh, and relieve pressure on the decisive theatre of land operations by distracting attention to secondary campaigns on the periphery of what, what, what might be described as the enemy's sphere of control. And these are some of the big issues that, we, that we've addressed in the past over the Great War. And it leads to some problems uh, uh, following some of these uh, principles. Uh, Absolutely. Gallipoli yeah. is one. Um, yeah. Um, well, Jackland itself is another. Yeah. Now, tell me then, uh, what, what, what do you think overall? How do Cor- Corbett and Mahan relate together? Well, Corbett's theories it can be seen with a passage of time, were built on the grounding principles already established by Mahan. So he's not contradicting him, he's adding a layer of reasoning to establish a sort of alternative naval policy should the enemy fail to oblige turning up for the decisive battle uh, at the convenience of the stronger maritime nation, i.e. Britain. Now, it's often forgotten that Mahan's hero, Nelson, spent two years aboard the Victory, pursuing a blockade of the French and Spanish fleets before they were finally brought to account at Trafalgar. Oh, yeah. So, in the end, both Mahan and Corbett are enormously influential, but they do slightly influence different schools of officers. Schools as in... As in the school of thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, uh, so that's the theoretical approach, but the balance of power is changing across the world at the end of the 19th century. So what? who's the, who's arisen? Who, who, which masked body of men? So the new kid on the block is Imperial Germany, who had emerged to pose a new threat to the British Empire. Following the military defeat of France in 1871, Germany was unquestionably the leading European continental military power and already competing vigorously with Britain in the worlds of industry and commerce. Now, a key figure in this is Kaiser Wilhelm II. He descended to the throne in 1888 and he was a rabid... uh, convert to Mahan's view of the crucial importance of net maritime power. He, like Mahan, believed that Germany would never be able to reap the power of her, the, the, sorry, the rewards of her military strength or, or industrial strength until she had commensurate naval power. This is, this is really important. Uh, but what does a, Alma King's just a figurehead, surely, do, who, who really kicks the German fleet and nation into action on this? Well, after the appointment of the brilliant Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz as his Secret- Secretary of State for Naval Affairs in 1897, these ambitions were duly enshrined in the Navy Act passed by the Reichstag in 1898. And hence our title, 1898 to 1914. Uh, what does it an- announce? Uh, plans to create a new navy of some 19 battleships. Now, they'd be pre-dreadnoughts, would they? It being before the dreadnought. <laughs> uh, yes. Together with a, a melange... Oh, a what, mate? <laughs> a melange of assorted coastal defence vessels and cruisers by 1904. But after the chastening demonstration of German powerlessness to intervene during the British colonial adventures in Southern Africa, which culminated in the outbreak of the Boer War in 1899... You've always wanted to do more on the Boer War. This estimate was revised to no less than 38 battleships in a new Navy Act of 1900. Uh, now, who is this challenging? Is it challenging the French? The no, it's clearly aimed at challenging the British. 
And this is an extract from the Memorandum of the Naval Act 1900. That's Germany's Naval Act of 1900. I'm not doing silly accents. I, I, I disapprove. I think some people switch off with our silly accents. No, I'm not. <laughs> to protect Germany's sea trade and colonies in the existing circumstances, there is only one means. Germany must have a battle fleet so strong that even for the adversary with the greatest sea power, a war against it would involve such dangers as to imperil his position in the world. For this purpose, it is not necessary that the German battle fleet should be as strong as that of the greatest naval power, for a great naval power will not, as a rule, be in a position to concentrate all of its striking forces against us. But even if it should succeed in meeting us with considerable superiority of strength, the defeat of a strong German fleet would so substantially weaken the enemy that in spite of victory he might have obtained, his own position in the world would no longer be secured by an adequate fleet. Uh, now, mm. this is clearly... Who is this... That is absolutely aimed at Britain, isn't it? It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, uh, the, the British were, they had a, a two, a two, two, uh, two power. They, their, their fleet was meant to be as strong as the next two powers. All right. So this is absolutely, it's, it's, it's aimed at Britain. Uh, now, what would it, what did this become known as? It's got a snappy title. Everything's got a snappy title except our podcast. Uh, the risk fleet theory. It was based on the expectation that Britain would not dare to take on the German fleet for fear of exposing herself to her other enemies. So, yeah, so the, the old rule of thumb, two powers. So who were the two powers that were originally aimed at? Who well, originally, we... it's our traditional enemies, uh, France and Russia, uh, who it was assumed would be acting in harness, the vaunted two-power standard. Oh, these are catchy, catchy names. So what uh, What does the expansion of the German Navy, up to 38 ships, remember? What, 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 what does that mean? Well, it makes... They're irrelevant, and actually, it would eventually force Great Britain to seek continental alliances. You mean that's what triggers the Entente Cordiale? Well, yes, potentially. Partly. The, uh, the Admiralty, look, I can say lots of words, but I can't say Admiralty. The Admiralty response to the increased pressure was amazingly bold. For the long years of superior superiority wielded by the Royal Navy had not brought them peace of mind. In between the death of Nelson, in between the death of Nelson, the outbreak of the First World War, the Royal Navy managed to generate a quite staggering amount of internecine conflict. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, the, yeah. Uh, well, why conflict? What? 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 Well, the the conflict is about. Everything, uh, the design and nature of the ships, it, it, they agonise over it. Uh, should they abandon sail, which they'd had for two or three hundred years, for steam engines? Uh, should they bring in breech-loading guns? Should should they move them, remove the masts if they were going to be steam-powered? Should they introduce turrets uh, and barbettes and or barbettes? Um, how are they going to respond to the threat posed by torpedoes, submarines, mines, destroyers? And they, 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 those are all the subject of endless, intense controversy throughout the 19th century. But that's not all. What else were they arguing about within the Navy? Well, aside from presumably cost, the nature of tactics was a subject of 
endless debate with separate but related mayhem over the form and nature of the signal book, by which means the ships of the line were guided in their manoeuvring. Well, which sounds... That I mean, sounds, that just sounds so petty, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and, and nothing was simple. Nothing can be taken for granted. Uh, and, and, you know, you try and use common sense and it's just another weapon of debate um, to be twisted to, by the protagonists of one side or the other. And you might ask, what had befallen, Gary? Nelson's band of brothers. But I want to re-emphasise the point you made, and that is finance. Money. Because... The Navy has always had a privileged position. It will get the money. Not now, obviously. Now we're cut to the ribbon. So, I mean, there is no Navy. Uh, but, but, the, but then they could have the money. But what if they bill, if, what if they go wrong? That money is wasted. Do politicians put up with that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. No, of course not. <laughs> and, and what, what, what do you think traumatizes them? And what, what do you think? brings this out well if you think about it it's the incredible pace of scientific progress throughout the 19th century and the awful prospect that the royal navy could take as you mentioned a wrong technological turning yeah they could and 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 you could miss some crucial new development and 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 if you miss him what happens well the fleet could be mortally embarrassed in facing an opposition armed with superior weapons when you say mortally embarrassed you mean sunk yeah Others felt it would be equally disastrous to abandon the tried and tested for the possible cul-de-sacs of the unproven. Yeah. I sort of get that. Well, I remember that the, they brought in breech-loading guns. They don't work. They go back to uh, the, 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 uh, the, the endy loaded thing. <laughs> God, why did I stop that? The, the other sort of... Uh, and, and they have to go... They go backwards and forwards. It isn't easy. Um, uh, so are there two sides or... or there always are, aren't there? You've got... Uh, yeah, but uh, is it complicated? Yes. You've got the confusion caused uh, by the progressives and traditionalists, uh, and it was fragmented and cross-cut depending on the matter at hand. So they'd argue about almost everything. And, and not necessarily the same people about the same issues. So people, one person would be in favour of sale. But Until they, tomorrow. Uh, but against breach... Oh, God. Now, uh, in this febrile atmosphere... What was that atmosphere? Febrile? I'm not sure. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds like a, a washing powder. Have we swallowed some kind of dictionary? New Fabril. <laughs> no. In this Fabril atmosphere, professional rivalries and imagined slights... Oh, I'm offended. ...came to have a life of their own that transcended naval politics into the realm of lifelong personal feuds with acolytes cheering on the main protagonists from the metaphorical side. I remember metaphorical. We had a load of them. We had a load of metaphoricals last time. <laughs> Uh, 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 tensions, uh, they're, they're so great, the tensions have built up. And and at uh, uh, many points during the last 40 years of the century, it's almost impossible to guess what form a fighting ship of the future would take. It's just incredibly difficult. Now, in these circumstances, it might have been supposed that the Admiralty might have been cautious in responding to the new German challenge. Yeah, but... Uh the, there's a, a, an interesting figure. We've talked about him before. It's the guiding hand of the first sea lord. Who was that man? Sir John Jackie Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> now, this very tension was used as the catalyst to achieve a root and branch revolution in the design of battleships. Yeah, it, in a sense, it all comes to a fruition. Uh, it, the, the, all the tensions are put aside and he gra grabs hold of the situation, doesn't he? Uh, yeah. Now... 
One thing, recent advances in gunnery had greatly increased the effective range and accuracy of the guns, triggered in part by the necessity of getting out of torpedo range. So the ranges increase, but if you have a mixed armament, you've got, say, 12. The the main armaments at the time, 12-inch guns, 9.2-inch guns, and 6-inch guns. Now, they were the show. They're on the pre Dreadnought, or let's just—they were called battleships at the time. Uh, th- that's what they had. They had a mixture of those guns. Um, but uh, th- there's a problem if you go to long range. What is the problem? Well, new techniques placed much more importance on firing guns in salvo and straddling the target. But this process was hopelessly confused when a ship fired a mix of gun calibers. At the same time, that's, so if, yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? Because they're all different splashes. Which yeah, one's a nine? You know point, which one? Which one's a nine point two, and which is a twelve inch? Which one? You know. Um, so what they need is an armament of eight or more guns of the same caliber. So it's just simplifying. Um, and th- these heavier guns, they're, they're actually pretty accurate, aren't they? They're relatively more accurate. Uh, and what happened? Uh, what, what is a is a twelve inch shell more damaging than a six inch? Well, shell? naturally, yes. And uh, so the answer lay in the all big gun ship, and as a result, the dreadnought was born with a 10 12 inch guns disposed to allow an eight gun broadside. And so eight guns could fire to the port, and eight guns could fire the thing. Yeah. Um, now you shouldn't fire at the port; you might need it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now uh, that, that 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 there's a problem if you put i mean this is you remember what we said about uh if you have a lot of guns yeah you've got something's got to give hasn't it so uh such an arm, armament would have rendered the dreadnought so slow that she'd have been unable to catch her more likely armed contemporaries ah but something else is there's a new new thing that's been developed what is that new thing well the admiralty commissioned a startling innovation in the method of propulsion to get the speed that would allow the new ship to catch her victims the new parsons turbine engines were to be used generating the then unprecedented speed for a british battleship of 21 knots. 21 knots. Uh, That's wow. fast. Now, what else are they doing? What else is new about the, what would be the dreadnought? Well, the defensive armour plating was less exceptional, although well up to prevailing standards and strict regimes of watertight compartmentation uh, were observed beneath the waterline. Now, at this point, mainly to put my teeth back in, we'll take a short break. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, once conceived, the Dreadnought was built in great secrecy in exactly a year and a day instead of the usual three years, which was another phenomenal achievement. How long does it take to build a ship now? Well, exactly. How long does it take to build anything? A train. Yeah, it, that, that is incredible. Now, as a result, suddenly, on the 3rd of October 1906, when she sailed for her sea trials, all the navies of the other great powers built at such enormous cost were outdated. In particular, the new German fleet, I would imagine. So are they all pre-dreadnoughts? They are now. <laughs> Now, magnificent ships that embodied the national pride of their countries, overnight they uh, become belittled, belittled and they get that tag, pre-dreadnoughts. Still, you know, still good ships. Some of them very modern ships. Yeah. Well, some of them were built after the uh, the Nelson. The, the yeah, the phrase used often is obsolete, but yeah. they're not obsolete in that sense. Yeah, the Lord Nelson and I think the uh, Agamemnon are, are actually That's after... That's easy for you to say. That's easy for you. ...are actually uh, launched after the Dreadnought. Uh, so, um, uh, wow, it, that, that is just amazing. Um, so, uh, the, the, Britain's got, got the lead, uh, but there's a risk for Britain. What is the risk? Well, I think you mean their huge numerical supremacy was rendered almost irrelevant at a stroke. Uh, uh, let's, well, there's lots of ways of looking at this. Yeah, I mean, there were many advantages to deliberately instigating the revolution in naval design before a competing nation had a chance to seize the initiative. So Britain's taking the initiative. So the British are looking at the dreadnought going, oh, that's nice, I'll polish that bit now. Uh, uh, and they're commissioning more, uh, uh, the Bellerophon class, more more new dreadnoughts. They're, they're, they're getting them going. Uh, what do the foreign navies have to do? Well, they're forced to suspend their naval programmes and go back to the drawing board. Literally. Literally, to design their own dreadnoughts from scratch. Uh, What were the Germans going to do? They could have just given up, couldn't they? Uh, Abandon it. Well, they could have done, or they embrace a stupendous new investment. Yeah, it might be why they lost the second. If they'd invested all that stuff in the army... They chose once again to challenge directly the Royal Navy, but it was not until July 1907 that the Germans could begin work on their first dreadnought. I think the word there we're emphasising is begin, isn't it? That it's not that's not when they launch the first one. That's when they begin work. And there's another problem for them that the British have landed because the dreadnoughts are bigger. Uh, what do they have to do? 
Well, they've got to widen and deepen the Kiel Canal that linked the Baltic and the North Sea, a task that wouldn't be completed until the summer of 1914. And conspiracy theorists forever will always say that that was the date that the First World War was always going to start. The Great War was uh, when they they couldn't they wouldn't start it till they they dug out the Kiel Canal. That's um, now through all this, when the mists cleared, the British had once more secured their lead. The Dreadnought was not the only innovative new ship launched on a start of naval world, was it? No, no, no. Fisher, uh, he believed that speed was the most effective form of defence. Speed will beat their armour. We've done this. HMS Invincible podcast. So if you want to look back in the archives, you'll find two or three on HMS Invincible. Um, so it, it, Fisher instigated this new class of armoured cruiser and they'd become known as the Battle Cruiser, wouldn't they? Well, well in what, time, yes. What's new about it? Well, well, they, they, they'd also have a uniform heavy armament, in this case, uh, eight 12-inch guns. But instead of the thick armour plating of the Dreadnought, they were to be lightly protected, relying on their exceptional speed of 25 knots to whisk them away from danger. Now, they're, they're intended to sweep the seas clear of foreign cruisers who would find themselves unable to either fight or escape. Can you think of an example of foreign cruisers that were unable to fight or escape uh, the battle cruisers? No. Battle of Coronel and the Falklands. Well, no, Battle of the Falklands, where Von Spee's ships came to a, a sticky end. And you did remember that. I did remember that. But, and if used in their intended purpose, good ships for that purpose. Yes. As yes. long as they were used for that purpose. Now, the first battle cruiser was the aforementioned Invincible. That's completed in 1908. Uh, it, it's got a, it creates a lot of interest and, uh, and, and it, it's create the whole battle cruiser concept comes from that magnificent ship. Uh, what what, 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 what is the problem of the battlecruiser concept? Well, the very strength of their massed 12-inch firepower created an irresistible temptation to use them as the fast wing of the battle fleet, i.e. not for the purpose they were designed. What happens then? Well, here they'd inevitably encounter heavy shells from the enemy dreadnoughts that could easily penetrate their thin armour. And the question remained, what would happen when they met their inevitable direct equivalent... I.e. German battlecruisers. ...who would be capable of the same speed? Oh, dear. Well, the Germans try and preempt the Invincible. They, they try and guess what she's going to be like. How does that go for them? Well, they build the Blucher, which is armed with 12 8 0.2-inch guns in the apparent belief that the Invincible would have only eight 9.2-inch guns. Did, uh, did, uh, did, did, did General Bluke have an 8.2-inch gun? Yeah. Impressive. Well, he was very impressive. Now, although the Germans got off on the wrong foot, they actually then came up with a better balanced design for their subsequent battle cruisers. I think so. Why? Well, they were just as fast, but they incorporated a far superior overall level of armour protection. And in the end, uh, they would test to destruction Fisher's dictum that speed is its own armour. Now, the naval race between Britain and, and Germany escalates uh, over the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, both sides are seeking to match and exceed the building programme of the other. And, and this, this poisons relationships between uh, uh, Britain and Germany, and it forces uh, uh, Britain into new, new bedfellows. Who are those bedfellows? Well, ever closer informal links are formed with her two former enemies, France and Russia. The Entente Cordiale was Je, born. Je t'aime. 
and plans for military and naval cooperation in the event of war were hesitantly sketched out between the erstwhile rivals. Yeah, the French would look after the Mediterranean, we'd look after their coast, uh, and, and of course we'd send an expeditionary force to uh, the BEF to, uh, to, en- to engage in the continent of Europe. Uh, that, that's pretty important, isn't it? It is. Now, each successive class of dreadnoughts raised the stakes just as they increased in overall size, hitting power, armour and speed. Yeah, well, gunnery ranges uh, get, get, get longer and longer and uh, they, get, they bring in new methods of fire control, uh, uh, sophisticated new methods, which, to be fair, the things like the Dummeresque and they, we don't understand them, do we? No, and it, what it means is that soon the dreadnought herself was teetering on the brink of a relative obsolescence. Well, within within t- uh, ten years, it was yes, absolutely. Now, um, June nineteen fourteen. What happens? Don't know. Archduke Fer- Franz Ferdinand, a good band by the way, if uh, pop pickers um, of Austria, Austria Hungary, uh, he's assassinated, and this uh, leads to the Great War. Um, uh, it's it's rooted in the Balkans. It spreads over the world. Blah 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 blah. blah. Now, um, what does the Admiralty? They've got a slightly jaundiced view of the, of the man who's in situ aboard his flagship, the Iron Duke. Uh, he was commander in chief of the Home Fleet. We've not met him before. He's Admiral Sir George Callaghan. Who is he? Well, he's a respected senior officer and he'd been in command since 1911 and had already had the normal two-year period of tenure extended until October 1914. Now, um, what, what's the root of the problem, do you think, that with, with Callaghan? Uh, what, 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 what's, what's the problem? Why? What's wrong with him? Well, at the root of it is his age. At 62, the Admiralty felt he was simply too old to be entrusted with the onerous duty of wielding his country's main weapon, in a war that would, one way or another, shape the 20th century. Uh, am I past it at 68 then? Yeah. Will you be past it in a year or so? No. Now, it's these fears that caused Winston <laughs> sulky, Churchill... Sulky noises over him. <laughs> ...the First Lord of the Admiralty... We've heard appo- of him. ...to appoint Sir John Jellicoe, then the Second Sea Lord, as second in command to the fleet. Now, what's the intention of this? Well, it was that Jellicoe would take over command of the fleet in the normal course of events when Callaghan had finished his term of office. But Jellicoe had long been marked for greater things. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, John Jellicoe. Uh, let's have a look at his background. Let's see what he is. He was born on the 5th of December, 1859. Uh, and his family, uh, they've got naval connections, and he was sent as a cadet to the training ship uh, Britannia. What age? 12. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing I find quite amazing. Yeah, his tuition had its origins in the age of sail, but Jellicoe thrived, passing out in 1874. Now, he, 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 that's not the end of his instruction, but he, he continues to study hard uh, and, and perform his duties brilliantly, and he did really well as he progressed through the ranks of junior officers. He specialised in gunnery, and uh, whose attention did he attract by that? Well, it, it's Fisher himself who was then commanding the excellent gunnery school. Not not the excellent, that's the name of it. HMS Excellent or Imagine Shore Station, whatever you want to call it. It's uh, Where is it? Uh, I don't know. Whale Island. Oh, of course it is, yes. You did know that. No, I didn't know that one. Now, Jellicoe spent the next few years divided between postings to experimental ships and ashore at the excellent in Whale Island. 
1889, he was acting as assistant to Fisher when he was a, when Fisher was appointed as director of naval ordnance at the Admiralty. This is an important theoretical potion, isn't it? Uh, well, so Jellicoe, he's got a mixture of intelligence and sheer hard work. Uh, that's what took you to the top at TFL, isn't it? How did he die? He died of shock for Vittel. Jellicoe's uh, intelligence and, and hard work took him to the rank of commander in 1891. After his promotion, he went back to sea as executive officer, first aboard the San Perel and then on the Victoria, which was then the flagship of the Mediterranean fleet. Uh, that's very good. He's doing it's well. Excellent. But uh, that plum posting could have been the end of him. Why, Gary? On 22nd of June, 1893, as Jellicoe lay below decks in his bed, struck down by a fever, Admiral Sir George Tyron committed a gross blunder in manoeuvring his fleet as he ordered the leading ships in each of the two columns to turn inwards. There we go. There's two columns going side by side and they turn inwards. So they're now going straight for each other. Uh, what happens then? Oh, well, I presume his subordinates would uh, cancel the orders and take uh, evasive action. No, they absolutely failed for a variety of reasons to correct this elementary error, or indeed to take the necessary evasive action. And as a result, the ram of the camper down crunched into the side of the Victoria, which duly heeled over and sank. Blimey. And where was Jellicoe you mentioned? He was in his bunk, wasn't he? Now, Jellicoe, against the odds, was rescued from the water, although Tyron and many others perished. This is a bit of a low point for the Victorian Navy, isn't it? Yeah, and it demonstrates the inherent inflexibility of mind of many, if not most, of her senior officers. This isn't Kudail, or however you pronounce it. This isn't Kudai. seeing a situation and grasping it and acting. This is... Uh no, I mean, all, all the officers had been brought up and drilled to believe that their admiral was second only to God with near-papal infallibility. Whoa. Now, the inevitable consequences of such mental atrophy would bedevil the fleet for many long years. Now, Jellicoe survives, though, and his, his qualities, uh, uh, manifold qualities, are recognised by, by the replacement Mediterranean Commander-in-Chief, Tyron being dead, uh, who is Admiral Sir Michael Colm Seymour. And he selects him to serve as commander aboard his new flagship, Victoria having a little rest at the bottom of the sea, uh, the Ramillies. Um, so how does it go for Jellicoe? What happens to Jellicoe after this? Well, after a successful three-year commission... Jellicoe was made a captain and his gunnery specialisation was reflected on his appointment to the Joint Service Ordnance Committee in 1897. At the end of the year, he's made flag captain by the Centurion and uh, Vice Admiral Sir Edward uh, Seymour and he's in command of the, the, the China Station. Uh, now here, the, the naked... I mean, this is awful. I mean, are we the baddies? <laughs> well, Chinese are goodies in this, but we're not... Weird, certainly baddies. The colonialism of Britain, France, Germany and Russia, they, they, they want to cut up Imperial China for, for their profit uh, and the Chinese take against this. And what, what happens? There's a, there's a well, revolt. Not unnaturally. No. It stirred up considerable antipathy amongst the Chinese, which culminated in the Boxer Rebellion, which uh, was instigated by a mysterious but influential secret society, violently opposed to Western penetration in mid-1900. And we're both going to avoid the obvious jokes. Uh, now, the European embassy staffs are besieged at the P Peking legation. So it's a big area of ground in uh, in, in, in Peking. And Chalico is appointed chief of staff to the makeshift Anglo-German Naval Brigade, sent by train to attempt their rescue in June 1900. Uh, that's interesting that he was uh, working with the Germans there. Um, 
Now, the Chinese imperial troops begin to help the boxers, the insurgents, and, and the railway lines cut and the missions are abandoned. They retreat, but it's it's a bloody nightmare, isn't it, Gary? And, and it nearly costs Jellicoe his life. What happens? Well, 20- why? why does he nearly lose his life? Well, on the 21st of June, he led an attack on a Chinese village which blocked their retreat alongside the banks of the Peiho River. And this is what Captain John Jellicoe of HMS Centurion of the China Station says. I was hit on the left side of the chest, the shock turning me half round. I thought my left arm had gone. Sat down on a stone and cross, gunnery instructor, came and cut away the sleeve of tunic and shirt and helped me behind a house where I lay down. After a bit, Dr. Sibold came up and bandaged wound and told me that he thought I was finished. I made my will on a bit of paper and gave it to my coxswain. I was spitting up a lot of blood and thought the wound was probably mortal. I love that. The doctor came up to, ah, you've had it, lad. <laughs> Can you imagine that, though? Just sitting there thinking, oh, well, I'll just sit here and wait for I'll just make me. I'll just make me will. Yeah. Well, that's literally what he did. Um, he was... Uh, actually evacuated and uh, the doctor's gloomy prognostications prove wrong he makes a good uh, recovery what happens to the bullet gary well he carries that in his left lung for the rest of his life 1901 he returns to england he's appointed as assistant the third sea lord and controller sir william may his job and this is crucial is to inspect the work of the shipbuilders responsible for work on naval ships 1901 so in the next period this is in the period leading up to the dreadnought of course next sea command captain of the armoured cruiser Drake, where, as might be expected, he showed great interest in absorbing the new techniques of gunnery, with particular reference to the introduction of firing practice at much longer ranges than had been previously considered practical. And then then he's brought back in 1904 by Fisher to work on the committee that's uh, developing the plans for the dreadnoughts. This is where all his experience comes to, and he's a part of the dreadnought thing. 1905, he's made Director of Naval Ordnance at the Admiralty with special responsibility for overseeing the design and production of the heavy guns required for the dreadnoughts. That's the 12-inch guns, isn't it? Uh, How's his promotion going? Oh, he's doing really well. He's promoted to Rear Admiral in 1907, and he went to sea aboard the Albemarle as second-in-command of the Atlantic Fleet before returning to the Admiralty as controller in 1908. I'm not sure what controller is. Oh, uh, it's uh, it's 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 one of the ranks. It's in charge of uh, basically. Uh, you don't it, know either. No, no, I've forgotten. It's it's uh, it. I don't, I, what I mean is, I don't know what it. Uh, but he, but what he does is he's dealing with the problems, trying to expand Britain's shipbuilding capacity to produce dreadnoughts. Uh, this is the height, Gary, of the naval race. Stop throwing me off. Stop looking at me like that. Um, now, what, 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 Jellico, how does he feel about the naval race? Oh, he's an admirer of German design and shipbuilding skills. And he warned repeatedly that their ships were utilising their greater beam, that's the widest part of the ship, uh, to secure superior underwater subdivision and compartmentation, making them far harder to sink than their British counterparts. So what does he do? Well, he commissions floating docks to repair damaged ve- vessels in action, which should war occur, and, and, and that would help ease the possible pressure on the limited availability of sub- suitable dock provision. Well, well, what's, well the, 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 this problem is that there aren't enough docks that are wide enough to take the ships we're building. It's, it's a bit like building, uh, for instance, if you built an aircraft carrier without any aircraft. Yeah, that it, wouldn't 
make no sense. Nobody would ever do anything like that. But th- this is uh, this is the same sort of problem. They're building ships, but they've got no dock pr- pr- provision. Um, let's see, he's also doing something else. Yeah, he's raising pertinent questions about the quality of British shells. And um, were they great during the war? Uh, no. No. That's, uh, uh, his capacity for sheer hard work was invaluable under a, a relentless pressure that might have broken a lesser man. It's like you at TFL before you were yeah, broken. Yeah, it's very much like me. Before you were broken. Now, in 1910, he went back to sea. Hurrah! Hooray. First in command of the Atlantic Fleet and then in command of the second division of the home fleet under Sir George Callaghan. Now, he hoists his flag aboard the Hercules that's, uh, and, and that's the first time he's aboard one of the dreadnoughts. He'd done so much to, 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 to build and which would hold the, the future fate of his country, you know, in their, their shippy hands. The ship's out. Within hands. their compass. Oh, you are so technical. Now, during his command, he was involved in the trials of the new director firing system. Would you like to explain the director firing system? Well, it's for the main armament and it's sought to direct and concentrate the fire of the multiple turrets on a dreadnought by the controlling hand of a single gunnery officer stationed high in the ship. Now, when we did the podcast, I said, well, what happens if something happens to the gunnery officer? Well, yeah. Now, Fisher and Churchill, by this time, they, they picked someone uh, and they picked Jellico as the new Nelson. New Nelson. Uh, and they plan for him. They are Mahanists, if you like. Mah- I can't say that now. Uh, they, they, they are people who believe there's going to be an Armageddon. Armageddon on out of here, as Spike Milligan used to say. Um, uh, Armageddon, uh, the, the great naval battle that would decide the, the, the future, which would happen in the near future, they thought, because they, they expected war with Germany. So they picked Nelson. So, no, uh, they didn't pick Nelson. They picked Jellicoe. No, Nelson, somebody else. Yeah. He's now, late, the new Nelson, that's right. Late in 1912, Jellico returned as second sea lord to the Admiralty. Why do we keep making mistakes, Gary? Yeah, <laughs> he, he had to deal with the rambustious character of Churchill, who was never one to let protocol dictate the limits of his powers or influence. Well, they came into conflict, and I actually could see, from what I know of Jellico's character, that they would come. Uh, but Jellico, he's, he's tactful, uh, he's reasonable. Uh, and the two never actually fall out. And, and, and Churchill fell out with many people, uh, but he, he didn't really fall out. Uh, and, uh, you know, and when Jellicoe is given a leave of absence to take command of the Red Fleet against the Blue Fleet, uh, that, that was commanded by Callahan, the men, uh, in the naval exercises of 1913, he Jellicoe did so well. Once again, the full light of Churchill's favour falls upon him. Yes. Now, Jellicoe was the coming man, although he himself was not aware of how soon he would be thrust into the very front rank. Now, the, the gathering war clouds in 1914 caused the schedule. Uh, what happened is the fleet had been called together uh, for uh, a formal uh, inspection by George V at Spithead, the Spithead Review. This took place on the 17th of July, 1914. This is right in the middle of the crisis, isn't it? Now, so what do they decide to do? They decide not to disperse it back to its many stations. They keep it together. Uh, and indeed, they start to move to their war station uh, at Scapa Flow. They, they, we'll, we'll talk about Scapa Flow later uh, because that's part of uh, what goes on. Um, well, no, let's talk about it now, Gary. Now, now, why Scapa Flow? What's going on? Well, the Royal Navy had been weaned on a diet of uh, close blockade. Her storm-tossed ships... Ah. 
purple prose, has stood off French and Spanish ports throughout the endless wars that disfigured the elegant facade of the 18th century. <laughs> now, as you've mentioned, the emergence of the submarine as a credible weapon of war had left this policy in tatters like a tattered windsock. Oh, yes. Nothing, it seemed, could prevent the submarine from sneaking out of port to prey on the tethered goats of any close blockade. Yeah, they'd fleet. be helpless, wouldn't they? Just sat, If they're sailing up and down outside the port, they're, they're there. Uh, now, there's also the threat of fast destroyers. They could nip out of harbour and launch an attack just the same way. Um, and uh, and uh, there's another point. Well, mines as well can keep you back. But well, there's another point. Nelson, two years off... off what, can you do that in a battleship, in a pre-dreadnought? Well, modern ships... Or dreadnought. Can you do it? Well, modern ships don't use the endlessly renewable wind power to fill their sails. They've got to instead return to port regularly to take aboard coal or oil to power their vast engines. Now, these problems were clearly discerned, but the ingrained traditional methods of warfare took some shifting, and it was with considerable reluctance that the close brigade was abandoned in 1912. So what's going to replace it? Well, there's lots of wild schemes. The maddest is those comp- uh, promulgated by Churchill. He wants to capture the offshore German island of Borkum as a forward base. That would have gone well. Uh, but eventually, uh, they come up with a policy of distant blockade. So not close blockade, Gary. Distant. What do you think the main feature of distant? How does that differ from close? It's further away, or is it just smaller? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what's thrusting it upon them? Well, I think it's geography. Tell me why. Why, why might I think it's geography? And again, we've referenced this before, the British Isles themselves effectively blockaded in the Germans, laying as they did four square across the sea routes to Germany. There were only two gaps. Why are they? Well, the English Channel to the south was narrow, only around 20 miles across at the Straits of Dover, and easily blockaded by a combination of a strong minefield uh, barrage patrolled by smaller ships and backed up by the 19 second-line pre-breadnoughts of the Channel Fleet. So those those obsolete ships are still useful. Uh, uh, but that's the other... The other gap is bigger, isn't it? And that's basically 200 miles between Scotland, that's a place north of England... Near Scarpa Flow. Yes. <laughs> between Scotland and Norway. Uh, and that would be patrolled by a force of cruisers. Uh, to, 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 as a, as a, but the main battle fleet... That would be at the huge natural harbour of Scapa Flow, which is where, Gary? Uh, it's tucked away in the Orkneys. Right. In a we want to go amphitheater. there. We want to go there, don't we? We do. Now, from here, they could protect the cruiser line and sweep down as required into the North Sea if the German fleet should dare to emerge from harbour. Now, directly facing the German North Sea ports was a, a strong har- Harwich force. Harwich. Harwich. Yes. Harwich. Oh, isn't English different? It's Harwich. Harwich. Uh, made up of fast lice cruisers and destroyers, and, and they would patrol the southern reaches of the North Sea and link up with the Channel Fleet or the Grand Fleet, the Battle Fleet, as required. Uh, this is this is pure corporatism. This isn't Mahan seeking a... Uh, a this is... This is this is Corbettism, isn't it? Mm. Not Jeremy Corbettism. <laughs> I've seen the same thing. It ceded absolute control of the North Sea 
which could not be achieved without insupportable risks. So they could only do that with a close blockade, which they can't do. Right, so... But it secured for Great Britain almost all the benefits of control of the wider oceans across the globe. Yeah, the blockade's secure. The, the German fleet is effectively under house arrest, and it's an impasse that, 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 that they can't get past without assaulting the jailer, the jailer being the Grand Fleet, and facing a major fleet action. So, that, yeah... So what's Jellicoe ordered to do? Well, he's ordered North to join the fleet at Scarpa. Churchill had already made him aware that he might well be appointed commander-in-chief should war break out. How did he react? Well, Jellicoe was appalled at the prospect. He'd always liked and respected Sir George Callaghan, with whom he'd served, and although he had natural ambitions to command the fleet, he felt the timing couldn't have been any worse. Well, there's two reasons. I mean, in a sentimental way, he thinks that, that Callaghan will be just gutted absolutely gutted by his removal just at the moment when his whole career has come into fruition if you like by a wartime command and that mortifies that idea of doing that mortifies Jellicoe I want to make this point Jellicoe is a decent human being isn't he Um, yeah but it's not just mere sentiment or the feelings of an old friend and comrade that made Jellicoe blanch well what else is there well he's keenly aware that morale is a key element in warfare if there was even a sneaking suspicion within the fleet that he'd in any way connive to get the command, he could he could expect little loyalty from his aggrieved new subordinates. Well, when we're at that matter in battle... It, you, well, it could be disastrous, couldn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. The very concept of changing command at the point of war was inadvisable on principle. Yeah, how could Jellica be expected to be familiar with the intricate makeup of the fleet, the officers? Uh, uh, how could he be as familiar as Callaghan was, who'd been commanding it for the last three years? Um, he couldn't. He could only boast a cursory knowledge of the detailed war plans and dispositions. Now, as a result, Jellicoe sent multiple telegrams to the Admiralty attempting to persuade them of the irrationality of what they proposed. But they remained adamant. Adam adamant. Adam adamant and steadfast and but- resolute. Finally, on 4th of August, Britain enters the war. And despite all those protests, all those protests, Jellicoe's ordered to open his secret orders. Oh, which <laughs> literally, it was an envelope, wasn't it? Secret <laughs> orders. And to take command of the battle fleet. And that was when it then becomes known as what? The Grand Fleet, which although I'm you've been calling up. it prematurely. Yeah, Premature Pete, they call me. <laughs> yes, they do. He would be the man charged with the onerous responsibility of delivering the new Trafalgar that the British people expected and demanded. So Jellicoe takes over the fleet, takes over the, uh, Callaghan's staff, takes over his flagship, he takes over the fleet. What happens to Callaghan, Gary? Well, although he does leave the pages of history... More purple prose. Uh, he actually stays in the in the uh, the navy. Even he serves until March nineteen eighteen. First, as first and principal naval aide de camp to the king, which is a sort of nominal role, and then as commander in chief, the Nor, which is uh, down in Kent somewhere on land, and from uh, from January nineteen fifteen, and then he's promoted to admiral of the fleet in February nineteen seventeen. So he carries on serving, good for him, uh, but he is badly treated. But Jellicoe is the man for the job. Now, if you want to get ahead of this, you can read uh, the book I wrote with Nigel Steele, which is called Jutland, Death in the Grey Waste or something like that. I've got it somewhere. It's up there. Is it Death in the Grey Waste? That was a joke, that subtitle, but they took me literally. Many of your books are jokes. Well, I, I love, uh, never mind. I like the idea of the grey ships through the grey thing and the grey 
Now, if you'd like to support the podcast, the best way you can do so... How can they do it, Gary? ...is to purchase our book, our joint venture, Laugh or Cry, The British Army on the Western Front, 1914-1918. Yep, that's good. We love those of you who buy us coffees. We love them as well, don't we, Gary? We do. But most of all, we love the people who buy the book. We adore you. And it is available now, I think, uh, worldwide. It's certainly available in America, and uh, it's on Kindle in Australia, if not uh, in hardback. So uh, that's the best way to do it, Pete. Buy two and wear them as earrings. That's my advice to you. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Cheers Gary. Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it